Shamim Maktar was a scrap dealer living in the state of Chhattisgarh in central India. It was late November in 2004. He had money in his home from scrap that he'd sold. At about 6pm, a couple of men came to Shamim's door and sold him some more scrap. Shamim was at home with his big, young family, with children aged between 3 and 10 years old. An hour later, at 7pm, there was another knock on the door. Shamim opened the door to find five men outside. They entered his home and bolted the door. They demanded money, holding a knife to Shamim's throat. Shamim's 10-year-old daughter, Shabana, managed to escape the house and ran to a neighbour's home a kilometre away. The gang of five men killed Shamim and most of his family, leaving his three- and five-year-old children crying by the bodies. Police investigated and arrested Sonu Sardar. Sonu was imprisoned and a few years later convicted and sentenced to death. This is the rule book. Rules we make and sometimes break. My name's James Milsom. I'm a lawyer and other things in Melbourne, Australia. This is a podcast series about law and disorder. It's about the rules that we make to control each other and the ways in which they can come unstuck. This is a story about the death penalty. Living in a country where we don't have the death penalty anymore, I'm exposed mainly to cases in America that I see in documentaries or cases that involve Australians, for example, in other countries that do have the death penalty. But there are thousands of people executed every year and I don't hear many of those stories. Now, with some expert help, we're going to have a look into the law around the death penalty in India. First, though, let's dive a little bit deeper into Sonu's case. One of the really interesting things about the case is the evidence that was used to convict him. And the evidence in the case is this girl, this young girl identifying him as the person who was there. I'm Anoop Surendranath, uh, and I'm the director of the Centre on the Death Penalty at National Law University, Delhi. And he's talking about Shabana, the 10-year-old daughter who fled to the neighbour's house that I talked about earlier. And what I didn't tell you just yet is that Shabana picked Sonu out of a lineup, just like in the movies. Uh, and But the problem with that lineup was that uh, she said that uh, it was, it, since he's, he had the Sikh uh, hair bun, uh, and in the lineup he was only one who had that. So when they were making him, making her identify Sonu Sardar in from a lineup, the only person with a hair bun was Sonu Sardar himself. And her own thing was, oh, it was somebody with a hair bun. So if you put only one person there. Uh, who was the accused with that, and she picked him out of the lineup. And in the trial against Sonu, there were a few other pieces of evidence that were relied on to prove that Sonu was one of the members of this gang. They had a T-shirt and a turban that were apparently stained with human blood when seized by police. I've been digging around, and I can't see anywhere that says that the human blood was connected to any specific human, nor how much blood there was. Police had also seized an axe with a broken handle, a rod and a knife. They also can't see where the weapons were found or whether there was any evidence tying them to the crimes. Here's Sonu's lawyer, 
the evidence was flimsy at best. My name is Dr. Yug Mohit Chaudhary. I'm a lawyer practicing in Bombay, and I do a lot of death penalty work. But what was very, he was represented by legal aid all throughout. The quality of lawyering was very, very poor. Legal aid lawyers at that time were paid barely 500 rupees, which is, I think, maybe six or seven dollars for the entire murder trial. Six dollars. In my experience, a legal aid lawyer running a murder trial in Australia would get paid more like $20,000. But consequently, he had very, very poor legal representation. And uh, this evidence more or less passed unchallenged. Even this is still not the worst aspect of this case. This is one of the most error-ridden cases I've come across. And I mean, most of the death sentence cases I've done till date have been error-ridden. But usually, it's too, by the time I get involved, it's usually too late to point out these errors because the judicial process is completed. And just before we start talking about the law, a couple of things about the system in India that are not necessarily that familiar to Western audiences. In India, there's this whole entire thing of recovery evidence, which is evidence recovered at the instance of the prisoner and of the accused. But that's for me, that's very weak evidence because uh, our police and our investigation agencies indulge in a lot of torture. Uh, and a lot of custodial violence. So that kind of evidence in terms of them recovering the weapon on, on the base of what he said, or them recovering his clothes or fi finding blood, I mean, is very dodgy evidence for me in, in our criminal justice system. So, you know, that, I mean, that, and that I think that needs to be accounted for when reading Indian death penalty cases that a large, very large number of them, the convictions are based on this kind of recovery evidence where the recovery of incriminating evidence is at the instance of the prisoner having made statements to the police officer in custody, in police custody. And in Sonu's case, they had a t-shirt, they had a turban, they had these weapons. Or they, or they found it in his house, for example, right? Or, uh, or in some field or in some ditch that he said, oh, I've left it there. They'll say that he said it, that uh, he said that it's left there, uh, but what would have what I mean, the real concern is that it's all, it's usually planted, right? They plant it there and then make him sign a, they torture him or torture people, they sign a blank sheet of paper and they will say that, look, he is the one who led us to that evidence. And it's now for him to explain how he knew where the weapon was or where the turban was. So in the trial court, that's the court where there was evidence heard, the judge decided that Sonu was guilty and sentenced him to death. He was the only person who was being tried. One other person who was suspected of being a member of the group was a juvenile. They were 17 years old and so they weren't tried in the same way that Sonu was. Three others who were suspected of being a part of it um, were at large. They hadn't been found. So the court found that Sonu was the ringleader that he was responsible for all five murders. And the court said, and I quote, the five murders were brutal, grotesque, diabolical, revolting and dastardly, which indicated the criminality of the perpetrators of the crime. So I want us to get an understanding of how the death penalty works in India. But before that, I want to ask the question, why? Why have the death penalty at all? I think the popular cry then becomes to ask for 
the death penalty because um, it's, it's a sort of emotional release, you know, a sort of asking for the wipe. It, it, it's the desire to see the wiping out of this kind of brutality and the kind of extreme crime that exists. Uh, my name is Koruna Nambi, and I am an advocate in the Supreme Court of India, and I'm also an international lawyer. Of course, the problem is that um, the desire and the remedy don't really match at all. And the other problem is that politicians are quite quick to jump on the bandwagon because to change sentencing is really easy, to fix criminal justice systems is a lot harder, and to change... Um, so, um, so I think, yeah, so I think, you know, in terms of the popular debate, when there is a desire for that death penalty and when there is a sort of popular cry for a death penalty, then it's something that politicians say that, yes, we can do this and it's an easy way to respond. general mood in the country is that um, there's support for the death penalty, particularly in context of terrorism and sexual violence. Uh, there's a renewed enthusiasm, uh, especially after uh, the Delhi gang rape case. It's a verdict many have campaigned for, and when the news broke, there were many to cheer it. All four men were found guilty by the fast-track court on Tuesday. Today, they were sentenced to death. We will be completely satisfied when we see them hanging by their neck. But right now, we are satisfied because they have been given the death penalty. So now there is no doubt that they will be hanged. India, just like many of the other countries that were once colonised by Britain, has an appeals process, meaning, as you probably know, if you think that a judge got something wrong, you can go to another judge and ask them to look at it again. There's another important rule for us to understand. If a judge finds you guilty of murder in India, they've then obviously got to sentence you. But when they're thinking about sentencing you, the first thing that they have to think about is life imprisonment. That's the default. It's only if they decide that life imprisonment is not appropriate in the circumstances that they can think about death. The court said it has to be within what it called the rarest of rare framework. Uh, now, within that rarest of rare framework, the court said uh, there will be aggravating circumstances in each case and there will be mitigating circumstances in each case and it provided a sort of indicative list of what those aggravating and uh, mitigating circumstances might be and they said that judges uh, and courts will have to undertake a balancing act of these aggravating and mitigating circumstances and decide whether um, a death sentence is called for or not uh, in a particular case. So that's the rule. To decide whether life imprisonment is not enough, the judge has to think, is this the rarest of the rare of cases? The rarest of rare standard is applied in such a variable way that there are times that even with a bench that's split, in terms of deciding whether the accused is guilty or not. Like, you know, even in those cases at times that we've seen the death penalty. And as all these years pass, Sonu is sitting in prison. His case is being revisited by court after court, deciding whether his case is the rarest of the rare, looking at whether the evidence was enough. But I want to get a feel for what prison was like for Sonu. You know, the hygiene conditions are very bad, the health conditions are very bad, the food is very bad. And of course, 
there is unchecked brutality by the guards so there's it's these are these are walls they are behind closed walls and nobody can peer into them and there's no accountability there's no answerability and whenever it's the word of a prisoner against that of a prison guard it's always the word of the prison guard that's going to be accepted so the prison guards really have a cloak with this immunity they can do more or less what they like and one day in the prison where sonu was waiting to be executed some of the inmates overpowered the guards there was a jailbreak Sonu's lawyers would tell the court everything that they'd been telling them before about the evidence, about this rarest of the rare test, and how they thought it had been failed in Sonu's case. But now they had another thing to say, that he was behaving himself. There was a prison break and he didn't run, but each time the result was the same. A court had decided that he was guilty and his government was going to kill him for it. One of the other things that judges can think about when they're deciding whether to sentence someone to death is their age. If you're under 18, you're a juvenile and you can't get the death penalty. But even if you're over 18 but still really young, it's much less likely that you'll be sentenced to death. Now in this case what happened was the police showed him to be 23 years of age on the date of the offence. And this was never questioned by any of the lawyers during the trial or the appeals in the High Court and the Supreme Court. When we got involved in this case, we obtained evidence largely through the students working under Anup. That's the Anup you know, who's been helping us to tell this story. Who found that this boy was actually not 23 years of age, but just 18 years and two months, which is just two months over the age of juvenility. Two months younger and he couldn't even have been sentenced to life imprisonment under the law. And nobody so young, 18 years and two months, nobody so young has ever been sentenced to death in India because youth is a mitigating circumstance that usually is given effect to by the courts. And even 23 is quite a young age. And when it was argued for him at the trial and the high court in the appeal that he was, he was very young and should be therefore spared the noose, the courts responded by saying that 23 is not so young. But in fact, he was just 18 years and two months and when this was pointed out to the Supreme Court much later in review, saying that, look, you all have made a mistake, the court refused to admit that mistake and just dismissed the review. When you've exhausted all of your appeal options in India, that is, you've gone to every judge that the law said you're allowed to go to, and they've all said no. There is a final option. You can ask for mercy. Every prisoner under sentence of death has the right to make a mercy petition to the governor and then to the president. These are constitutional rights. And there is no time limit set either for the governor or the president 
to decide these mercy petitions. So the governor of a state and the president of India both have uh, mercy, uh, clemency powers um, and both of them as per our constitutional framework are bound by the advice of uh, the council of ministers. Uh, so they don't exercise independent uh, judgment on this. Uh, they are bound by the advice given by the council of ministers, which is basically the government. Um, but what, but what presidents have tended to do, especially presidents who didn't want to uh, reject mercy, because the constitutional provisions, while they've been interpreted and read to say that they're bound by the advice, don't give a time limit on which, by which the president has to decide. So there are presidents who've just sat on mercy petitions without deciding it. So they just don't, they sit on it. So they're in, they're not violating the constitution, but yet they're not rejecting mercy petitions either. And just in case you're making that face of disbelief that I made when I first heard about this, I want to confirm the president does have the power to grant clemency. That is to say, you don't have to be executed. You can serve a life term. The president doesn't actually have the power to make the decision whether to grant clemency. The government tells him or her what to do. And the president doesn't actually have to make a decision. They can just wait. In most cases, what happens is that when, the, I mean, when there is delay, the delay often, when there is inordinate delay, delay of 5, 10, 12 years, this delay is because the president does not want to reject the mercy petition as he's being advised to do by the cabinet. And his only option then is what is called in America the pocket vote, which is to delay and not do anything. Now, in a way, it's a blessing for the prisoner. It keeps him alive and it gives him another chance at getting the death sentence commuted. On the other hand, it's excruciating the kind of suffering it imposes on the prisoner because he doesn't know when the mercy petition is going to be decided. Every person passing by the cell door is assumed to be the harbinger of bad news. He's continually swinging between life and death, not knowing whether the next moment is going to be his last, whether he will ever live to see another day or not. It's this kind of suffering that wrecks immense havoc with the mental, psychological makeup of the prisoner, often reducing him, I mean, to the level of just a baby. Becoming, he becomes insane. He just prattles. And there have been a number of cases, especially in recent years, using this argument that delay by the president in even deciding on a mercy petition can cause mental distress or illness that is significant enough that it should mean that the person doesn't any longer deserve to be executed. It's a landmark verdict from the Supreme Court. 15 death cases have been commuted to life. The court today said that the delay in deciding a mercy plea is a relevant ground for commuting death sentence to life imprisonment. The court also said... That was in 2014. Now, I'm conscious that it might seem like we keep approaching these dead ends, these ways in which Sonu's case might be resolved, in which any unfairness might be addressed. And that hasn't happened. And that's kind of the point. Sonu did plead for mercy to the governor and then to the president. And his pleas were rejected. And 12 years on from the death of Chamim and his family, we've caught up. Right now, there's a case before the highest court in India... Yug and a team of lawyers who are working for Sonu are preparing to argue the case. 
and they're attacking from a bunch of different angles, like they're arguing... That the procedure adopted in adjudicating this mercy petition was not entirely fair, just and reasonable, or that there was arbitrariness or non-application of mind in the, in the decision of this mercy petition, then we, have a, then we are able to move the court and seek commutation of this death sentence, of this, of this rejection of the mercy petition. And you gave me an idea of some of the... Appalling blunders that they commit. There have been cases where the wrong rules were applied. Mercy petitions have been adjudicated without reading the case papers, without any reference to the mitigating circumstances, in ignorance of their own powers of adjudication of mercy petitions. And those are just some of the ways that the government gets these things wrong. And Sonu's case was not immune. His mercy petition was rejected by both the governor and the president, and then we have challenged the rejection of the mercy petitions by them in the courts. And what we have discovered is, again, in his case, the wrong rules were applied. Not just that, the documents were called for, the trial court documents were called for by the president. By When I say the president, I mean the central government. They were called for from the state government, and the state government never sent them. And then the central government says, you know, shot off a letter to the state government saying, if you don't send us the documents in 15 days, we'll decide the mercy petition without the documents. I mean, a kind of threat. But this was a threat to whom the state government couldn't, you know, care less. And why should the prisoner suffer because of the state government not having sent the papers? And that's exactly what happened. The papers never were sent. And the mercy petition was decided without reference to the trial court papers. No matter how you feel about the death penalty, I feel like you've got to at least want there to have been a fair process before someone's executed. In Sonu's case, the government was deciding whether or not to stop the execution. And someone in the state government just didn't send the papers. Were they in a filing cabinet or an out tray or in a pile on a floor? There are just under a hundred countries around the world where you can still receive the death penalty. Much less of them are actively executing people. And there are stats on this that you can find online. Presumably one of the reasons why we would want to execute people uh, is not only to punish them, but to warn other people, to show other people the rules are kill and be killed. But there's plenty of research that says it doesn't work. What's also, you see, so while on the one hand, post-1980, the number of death sentences have just dwindled drastically, at the same time, the number of, the murder rate has been de declining. From 1992 till, the de till date, the murder rate has declined continuously every year. It has not gone up. If the argument is that the death, death penalty deters crime, then with the declining use of the death penalty, crime murder rate should have gone up but they have been falling with the declining use of the death penalty. The case of Sonu Sardar is due to come up in the court sometime this year. I'll be monitoring the case online from a distance as it progresses, and you can do the same. If you want to do that and tweet at me, you can find me at Rulebook Podcast. Sonu's lawyer, Jürg, does a really good job of wrapping things up. This one case typifies most of the death sentence cases I've seen. It's an egregious example of a very typical example of 
these standard death sentence cases in India. It's error-ridden at all stages. And had this, and the only reason this man has been sentenced to death is because he had very poor lawyers. Had there been good lawyers, he would have been acquitted at the very first instance. Under no circumstances would he have been sentenced to death. The evidence is flimsy. And this is so typical of so many of these death sentence cases that I have seen. It's just, you know, again, one begins, even if you're a supporter of the death sentence, how could you ever want to sentence somebody to death on the basis of such flimsy evidence? Thank you for listening to this story and the raw book. I used a couple of clips today from news reports from Headlines Today and Sky News. I'd like to thank each of the three people who I interviewed who were um, indispensable in putting this piece together, Anup Surendranath, Yug Chaudhry and Karuna Nandi. Hit subscribe in your podcast app if you want to make sure that you don't miss episodes of The Rulebook. Get in touch if you'd like to by tweeting at rulebookpodcast or visit therulebook.xyz to subscribe to the mailing list and find out more. This was a production of Trixie. Find out more at trixie.xyz 